On the program tonight, we're going to look at a lot of different questions. We've got a bunch of random questions that we want to discuss. Some have been uh, submitted by listeners. I can full disclosure here. I made up some of these questions myself. You did? Yeah. Oh, so uh, we, we got about six questions. That's we why you didn't call this listener questions. Yeah, so. I just called it random questions. All right. Well, it's going to be a good discussion. Yeah. And lots of important We've got a special guest when we come back from our intro. All right. Don't go anywhere. We're getting started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and welcome to the virtual bible study this is the virtual bible study for thursday october 22nd 2020 my name is jacob Gwynn. my father greg greg Gwynn is here hello dad great to be with you jacob good to be with you kyle's behind the controls welcome kyle it's good to be here glad that you're here we're glad that you're listening you help the program to be better when you come Comment at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com or in the chat window to the bottom of your video feed. We look forward to hearing from you on the program tonight. For the last several weeks, we've been we've been talking about a gospel meeting that we're going to have here at College View, and it's, it starts tomorrow night. It's Crazy. Just, it's a short meeting, Friday, yeah. Saturday, and Sunday. Yeah. And our speaker is a fellow well-known to us and to a lot of our listeners and well-known here in the Middle Tennessee area. He actually preaches in Coleman, Alabama, Jim Deason. And Jim's on the phone with us tonight. Jim, welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. Well, it's great to be with you again, Greg. I uh, appreciate very much the work that you do there. and uh, I'm looking forward to being with you this weekend. Yeah, we... Uh, you know, we were very doubtful for a while as to whether we would even be able to have a meeting with all of the pandemic issues and lockdowns and uh, shutouts and uh, lots of concern, obviously, legitimate concerns people have about health issues. But thankfully, we're able to, to have a, a, a brief gospel meeting, and we think it will be great for us, and we want to, to sort of give everybody a heads up that it's happening. Can you give us a few teasers about what some of your t- uh, sermon topics are going to be? Well, uh, tomorrow night I'm going to talk about living in challenging times. Uh, you know, we live in a really difficult time, not only with the pandemic, but so many other things that are taking place uh, things in the political arena, we see the chaos and the anarchy that's going on in the world. Uh, we've got to ask the question, can Christianity survive in this kind of environment? And, of course, the, the answer is a definite yes. And so we're going to be looking at some things that Paul told Timothy and, and address that question. We're going to talk a little bit about the family as well. And so we're excited about uh, being with you to have the opportunity to see people that we haven't seen in quite some time. It'll just be a joy to be with this weekend. Well, that would be great. We sure look forward to it. Uh, We're just on our program tonight. We're just uh, dealing with uh, random questions. Some of them have been submitted by folks who listen, but I made up a couple of them. And one of them I made up, and we'll just start with this one, and and we'll ask for your input before we let you go for the evening. Have gospel meetings, I I, I worded it this way, have gospel meetings outlived their purpose and usefulness? I think your answer will probably correspond with mine, but I want to hear it. What do you think? Absolutely not. They have not outused their uh, usefulness. I I see so much good being done in the preaching of the gospel. I, I think that too many times people want to discount the preaching and what it can do to the hearts and lives of people we know and love. And so anytime you can have an opportunity to gather people together, talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to be helping them. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. You know, I, uh, we, you and I both, we've spent our lives preaching the gospel and we've gone to many places preaching. And, uh, this, uh, these past few months, it's been just, uh, it's crippling in some ways to us because we want to get out and preach and yet, uh, we've been hampered from that. Uh, but hopefully now we're seeing a lot of this wind down and we're able to get back to some semblance of uh, normalcy. And I'm just excited about that and the good that it can actually accomplish. Well, we're sure looking forward to having you. Uh, 
we want to remind everybody it's going to be Friday and Saturday night at 7. Our normal time Sunday morning. And you'll bring two lessons for us Sunday morning, Lord willing, 9.30 and 10.30. And then our evening service on Sunday will be at a different time than usual. It'll be at 2.30 Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon, rather. So we're going to get we're going to get you to bring us five lessons in total. And we sure look forward to them, Jim. We look forward to seeing you and, and your wife and uh, and look forward to the time together and the good lessons that you'll be preaching from God's word. Well, thank you very much, Greg. Looking forward to being with you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Bye-bye. God bless you guys. All right. Uh, Appreciate Jim for joining us tonight. Look forward to uh, hearing his lessons. And uh, you can find out more at collegeview.com. You can get to collegeview.com from thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Right there on the front page. Yeah. Uh, And so, as we said, we we wanted to deal with just some random questions. And and, uh, uh, full disclosure, I made up a couple of these. uh, But... The first one that we asked was, have gospel meetings outlived their purpose? And and Jim said what I would say about that. My answer to that is no, because if if we said yes, then we would basically be saying the preaching of the gospel is is not important, not necessary, ineffectual. And we don't believe that. We believe that any time the gospel message is proclaimed... That good is accomplished by it. Yeah, yeah. And and so we don't think that gospel meetings have outlived their purpose. I actually think we we likely should have more, not less, okay. because it involves the preaching of the gospel. Now, I, I think you have to point out historically that gospel meetings have sort of changed their point of emphasis or what they what they do. You know, a hundred years ago, uh, even... 50 years ago, probably, or 75 years ago, gospel meetings were very much an outreach in a local community. Uh, especially if you, if you went back before there was television. Yep. People didn't have a lot to do in the evenings, and churches had meetings, and, uh, folks would come just because it was a community activity, something to do in the evening, and a lot of people heard the truth and they obeyed. Obeyed it. Sometimes tents were thrown up and meetings were ha- held in tents. Uh, uh, some of the old timers like me will remember references to brush arbor meetings, you know, just meetings out in the open air. Uh, but people would come and there are, uh, now that it really predates my time, but I, I mean, we, we hear of meetings where dozens, maybe even over a hundred would be baptized and the meeting would be so successful in reaching people that they, they would talk about what they had protracted meetings and it came time for the meeting to end and folks the brethren would say it's going too well we can't stop now keep going and meetings would go on for weeks and weeks sometimes because they were getting such a positive community response now i'm sad to say that part of gospel meetings doesn't happen anymore and so the emphasis of gospel meeting work has sort of shifted toward edification strengthening the brother and being an encouragement to those who are already Christians. But that's really a good thing. I don't know if I could say, well, that's not that's not a useful purpose anymore. Preaching is still good. Mohan in, Ch- in Chicago sort of alludes to this. He says, possibly because of electronic means to get the gospel out today, like online and radio, gospel meetings may ha- be a little less effective today than in the past as a means of conversion. Well, that's an interesting I, I, observation. I think it's true. And, and, and that sort of goes in line with what I was saying. I, I don't think they're as, a, a, as powerful an evangelistic tool as they used to be. But now, So, Kyle, he's sort of getting close to home for you here. He says the electronic means to get the gospel out might be making gospel meetings a little less effective. What do you think about that, Kyle? Should we stop the streaming? But, you know, it, that kind of goes back to when we first started streaming. I was like, if it's going to be a hindrance to people attending services, then we'll just, we can stop streaming any time if that comes a hindrance. I think that's the thing that needs to keep your mind on. If you're streaming, it's a good supplement to your Bible study, but it's not a replacement for yeah. your Bible study. But here's, yeah. here's the thing, Kyle. When you're streaming the gospel meeting tomorrow night, yeah. if there are 20 people from the community that pick up the stream and watch it, does that mean it's a bad idea that they're not sitting here in person? If they're just, if they're non-Christians, curious about what's being said, I think that's a win. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't have to be sitting in this room. Now, as brethren, we want to be together for edification. Yeah. But for someone who's curious, doesn't know, sit at home and watch it yeah. and find out. Yeah. And then come be a part of it. Exactly right. All right. 
uh, Daniel and is Daniel in Georgia or Florida? He's in South Georgia. South Georgia. Daniel says, "Don't get rid of my edification." No, he's in North Florida. I'm sorry. Don't get. Yeah, he's he's pretty it, testy about this idea. Yeah, he says, "Don't get." But notice what he said. It was. He said it was. He's a Christian. And it was edification for him. And yeah. so he, he sees it that way. That's that's what we're mainly doing with gospel meeting these days. And I like his reference there, Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, talking about God's word. Listen, this is a gospel meeting. If it's not, he, the purpose of it is not to present the gospel, then it's a failure. Yeah. A lot of uh, people w- wanting entertaining speakers or wanting some kind of, you know, funny stories or heartwarming stories. No, we need the gospel preached, and that's what Daniel wants, and that's what we ought to demand as well. Exactly right. Uh, I got a late uh, email in from our buddy Dwight out in uh, Iowa who says, No, gospel meetings are very useful in the service of the Lord. Just because they have been around for a very long time uh, doesn't make them useless. I do believe that the people have become so busy in their lives, they leave out gospel meetings because they have so much going on, and the, uh, and the Lord and the church get put on the back burner. You know, I think Dwight mentions something there that I think sadly probably is the truth, you know. So it comes time for a gospel meeting, and I'm afraid some of us said, oh, no. We're going to have to go to church every night next week. Instead of, hey, great, we get a chance to engage in worship and Bible study every night next week. Yeah. You know? So what... what How's our reaction changed about gospel meetings? That that may be the telling factor right there. Good point. Appreciate that, Dwight. And Dwight's a little late to the uh, program tonight. Dwight, you could email your doctor's note to qu- questions at college. <laughs> yeah, you, tardy. We need a tardy slip That's there. That's right. All right. All right. Uh, so as we said, we're going to send. We, we're going to deal with random questions. In fact, I, I titled our email today to our update list: "Random Questions Asked and Answered" on the Virtual Bible Study tonight. Uh, remember, I should mention this, if you're not getting our, our email updates, get on our list, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com, just say add me to your list. So our first question was that one that we have discussed, have gospel meetings outlived their purpose and usefulness, and we think absolutely not. All right, now, the second question we want to deal with, and we may grab a break before we do this, the second question is one that we had to hold over from last week. And this also had been generated by me. So this is this is from oh, me. Oh, it was. Okay. Does an assembly on Saturday evening qualify as a first day of the week worship? Okay. Okay, so we're going to cover that because we had to leave that hanging last week. Then we're going to get to questions submitted by our listeners. In the first century, was there only one congregation in a given city? Should it be our goal to have just one local Lord's Church in each city? Okay. Number four, how do you correct a brother in error? How should a Christian respond to the one showing him his fault? What should we do if that brother corrects the problem? And what should we do if that brother does not correct the problem? So the, the question involves correcting someone in error. Okay. Number five, concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage, could you discuss the race to the courthouse idea? Okay. And finally, number six, I've been trying to help a fellow Christian, but she's very emotionally manipulating, and spending time with her affects my attitude at home and with my family. What should I do? Okay. Now, right. I've had to kind of compress those a little bit, so we may get a little more information. I've got the original text here, and we may expand on those a little bit. All right. Look forward to your answers to those questions. Let's go ahead and get a break, and then we'll get into that first one. What about meeting on Saturday instead of Sunday? Is that acceptable? We'll get your comments, and then we'll be back right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. When you take away the ice cream socials, the family center, the gym, the fellowship hall, and the plays from your church, what do you have left? Is there anything of real spiritual substance? Is there anything that says this is all about God and not all about me? At the College View Church of Christ, we want to stay focused on the goal of serving God. We don't offer what most churches offer, but we do offer Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If that's what you're looking for, come worship with us this Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. at the College View Church of Christ. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Don't grumble if you don't have what you want. Be thankful you don't get what you deserve. If it really doesn't matter how you live as a Christian, then why is it that most of the New Testament was written to Christians to show them how to live? Man, wish I'd said that. 
Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight, look at various questions, random questions, not really connected at all, but good questions for us to consider. Uh, number two tonight is about the Lord's Supper and first day of the week worship. Yeah. Last week on our, our study, we were talking about contemporary worship and some of the innovations that ha- people have brought in uh, that that we think, and we and we kind of exposed that last week. We think are wrong and not not biblically based, and are a perversion of true New Testament worship. But one of the things that we hear about really more and more is denominations having a worship service on Saturday night. That uh, and I don't. I, I can't think of any reason other than it frees up people to have a full day Sunday to do what they want to do. Catholic churches have done that for a number of years. They've had a Saturday evening service uh, in lieu of people coming on Sunday. Now, uh, is that uh, I, I kind of lump that in with con, uh, contemporary worship practices, but is that legitimate? Now, I think the underlying argument you have to deal with is Jewish timekeeping. The next day started at sunrise, so, so we're we're after sunset now on on our Thursday evening. But in Jewish timekeeping, we're into Friday. So if this was Friday night, it was, it was Sabbath day. They they would have to start observing their Sabbath yeah, Friday night at, at sunset. They 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 are under Sabbath regulations. So the argument might be made. Well, Saturday night then, after sunset on Saturday night, is actually the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. And so we could worship after sunset on Saturday and be complying with the idea of a meeting on the first day of the week. And that knife cuts both ways as well, because if that is true, then you cannot meet on Sunday evening and call that a first day of the week meeting, because that would be a Monday meeting. Yeah, exactly right. And that's that's the issue. So. You know, first, I think you make a great first observation. Is you're gonna you're gonna have to have it one way or the other. You can't play on both sides of that fence. You're gonna have to go one way or the other. But it is clear from a from an analysis of the New Testament that the first day of the week, where it's referenced as the day upon which they observed the Lord's Supper, which is Acts 20 verse 7, is clear that throughout the book of Acts, Luke uses Roman timekeeping methodology not jewish timekeeping methodology the romans kept time as we do from midnight till midnight and it's clear that luke did that in fact even in the so what day do we observe the lord's supper our full our our complete information on that is in acts chapter 20 and and so in acts chapter 20 uh verse uh Seven. It says, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. He was he was going to leave the next day. Okay, he was going. Now get this. He was going to leave the next day. So if this was Sunday, he was going to leave Monday. All right. He preached until midnight. Skip down to verse 11. Uh, Paul raised the man who'd fallen from the window and died. He was taken up uh, again when he was taken up again, uh, or, or when he was come up from, from that miracle. When, when, when Paul, therefore, was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. At break of day... If this was Jewish timekeeping, it was still the first day of the week. It wasn't the morrow. It wasn't the morrow. Right. So right here in this text in Acts chapter 20, it's clear that they were using Roman timekeeping methodology. Justin Martyr, which was, uh, uh, I think a lot of our listeners recognize him as one of the early church fathers, as they call him. He was one of the uninspired secular uh, writers in the first and second century. he says, uh, Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly. Jesus Christ on the same day rose from the dead. Uh, so th- th- there's no doubt that they, they met on the first day of the week 
in the day of the first day Sunday. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear. Okay. Uh, here's what Mohan says. For some people involved in essential work on Sunday, such as doctors or police officers who may not be able to worship on Sunday, an alternative day possibly can be used for them to worship. I believe this is how Sunday evening services sprang up for those hindered from worshiping Sunday morning. Uh, well, actually, Mohan is, is, is correct in that Sunday evening services are a post-World War II phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having two services on Sunday, one in the morning and one in the evening, really came to pass after World War II. And it really came to pass because of shift work. Two things happened. People had more leisure time, had more time off. Uh, you know, the five-day work week became more common. But there was also a lot of shift work because the the, the nation's industry was expanding rapidly. And so uh, uh, those factors, more leisure time and shift work, gave people the idea, let's meet a second time on Sunday. So that, that that's where the Sunday, Sunday night assembly uh, originated. Uh, but but again, to your earlier point, if after sunset on Sunday is actually Monday, then it's not a first day of the week meeting. So could we have alternate times to worship? Certainly we could, and we do. But as far as first day of the week worship, activities that are constrained to the first day of the week, the giving, Acts chapter 20, verse, I'm sorry, <laughs> thank you, Lord's Supper, Acts 20, verse 7, giving, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, those two I, I, uh, acts are limited to that first day of the week. Uh, a meeting of the saints. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So again, uh, we, we're just absolutely certain that the only text in the New Testament that references what day the saints met to observe the Lord's Supper, Acts twenty verse seven, we are absolutely certain that Luke was using Roman timekeeping there, and therefore we know that they they met on Sunday, which is our Sunday, not on Saturday night. Daniel wants to take the safe road. He says, I'm more comfortable with waiting until Sunday because we can be sure. And so uh, when in doubt, certainly, if you can't do it by faith, then you need to take that high road. Dwight says, no, we have a time system that qual- uh, qualifies us to abide by it. Saturday is still Saturday until midnight, then Sunday comes. We can worship every first day of the week, but we have certain things we... We can worship every day of the week. Every day of the week, but we have certain things we have to do on the first day of the week. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. I hope that pins that down for us. Oh, uh, I got a, I held over a, an email from from our friend uh, Kent in Georgia, yep, uh, and he had answered this question last week. So let me read what he answered. Does does a Saturday evening service qualify as the first day of the week worship? He says no, it does not. The way virtually all societies measure time is from midnight until midnight. If there were a society that officially used the Jewish methodology of measuring time from sunset until sunset, that would mean that Saturday, as we consider it, would no longer be Saturday. It would, by that standard of measurement, be Sunday, the first day of the week. I'm not aware of any society that today measures time officially like the Jewish society that we read of in the Bible. So kids make the point. Well, if there was some place where Saturday night was really Sunday, then you could call it Sunday if that's how if, if that's how they mark time. Okay. Uh, he's saying we could go with it, but we're going to have to be consistent because the people who are doing that today, Saturday is Saturday. They're not. They, yeah. They're not calling it Sunday. They're not calling it the first day. Yeah. So if we were in a place that measured time like the Jews measured time, then theoretically we could do that. But we are not. And these people who are doing this are not. And so you can't do that. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, I recall back when the when the, the, the Tennessee Titans came to Nashville. I believe a, a, a liberal church of Christ up in Nashville started offering the Saturday night communion so that you didn't have to worry about making it to church and then trying to get to the ball game. Just go straight to the ball game on Sunday morning. Um, you know, I don't think decisions like that are really based on a lot of textual study, Kyle. I don't think that, you know, people went to the Bible and suddenly were enlightened that that's what they needed to do. I think it worked the other way around. They maybe tried to get the Bible to conform to their preferences. Oh, yeah, as, as we uh, have done many times over our history, I guess, you know, men will will try to hammer the Bible to meet our needs and uh, let the Bible to let our needs meet the Bible. So that's just, yeah. 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 All right. All right. Uh, so let's move to our third question. First, I've got a couple more minutes here before break. 
in the first century, was there only one congregation in every given city? Would that be a goal for us to have just one local church in every city? Right. Uh, I don't know that we can conclude that there was only one church in a given city. Uh, I think I would argue likely that was the common practice. That was that was probably common. But whether or not we could say that that's absolutely so, uh, I'm not sure. A uh, couple of verses that kind of come to play on this. At the end of the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, when they had ordained them elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Notice they ordained them elders in every church. That was what Paul and Silas did at the end of the first missionary journey, Acts 14, verse 23. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, for this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So some people want to take those two verses and put them together. Elders in every city, elders in every church, one church in every city would be would be a potential conclusion on that matter. I don't think that you could make that a, a clear conclusion. Titus was in Crete. He was in a specific geographical location. And Paul said, I left thee there that thou mayest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city. Every city of Crete. In every city of Crete, Paul knew there was only one church, obviously. And that's why he would probably express it that way. Paul had been to Crete himself, obviously. And he knew the situation that existed in those cities. So it would be fair for him to say, appoint elders in every city, knowing that there's only one church in all the cities that he is aware of in Crete. Okay. Uh, but to say that that would be the case everywhere, I think, is a step beyond okay. what we're able to make. Okay. All right. Well, here's what uh, Daniel said. As long as we're following Christ, it may, be, it may even be necessary, depending on the size of the city and transportation. He references Jonah 3, verse 3, talking about Nineveh. Uh, and how big of a city it was, it seems to, from jo- Jonah 3, verse 3, it says it was a three-day journey. Uh, it seems like it took, potentially took three days to travel from one side of Nineveh to the other. It's a big city. And you can imagine cities like that today. Uh, think about, well, Dallas or Houston, some of those big spread-out cities. You, if you're on foot, it would take you days to get through that. Are we to say that there could only be one church in a geography like that? Well, and here's the other complicating factor is who defines the limits of a city? Yeah. So you go to Houston. There there are little towns yeah. all surrounding Houston, all surrounding Atlanta, yeah. uh, all surrounding New York City. Yeah. There are little burgs and villages and cities all around these major cities. Are we? So who's going to say, well, that? is that's officially a city, but no this part, one yeah. is not. Yeah. Who's going to make that determination? That, 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 puts, that puts a burden on us that we're not able to, to accomplish. So, again, I think it would be establish a, a standard for us that we could not maintain. Here's what Mohan says. One question to ask is, was there possibility one plurality of eldership for a church that met in different locations? For example... The Ephesus Church of Christ may have been one church that met in different locations that had one set of eldership. Reading about house churches in the Bible may infer this. So were they setting up elders over certain towns, and then there were multiple little churches in that town, but the elders were all over that that whole town? I think not. Okay. I would have to say my answer to that is no, because... Acts 14:23 there were to be elders in every church. There you go. And in 1st Timothy or 1st Peter 5 verse 2 the the limitation on oversight of elders is to feed the flock which is among you. Okay. And so uh, they're not to be overseeing several churches. Their limitation is over the flock where they are physically located. Good point. And so their oversight is limited and that expression, elders in every church. Uh, so, I mean, again, are we really a church if we're all divided? You know, 
we got to be careful about that because do you remember back a few wait well a few months ago now when this pandemic thing broke out we were talking about what's the possibility of churches going completely online and we discovered that one church out there in Oklahoma that has like 70,000 members and they're not in Oklahoma yeah. they're everywhere so can the elders in Oklahoma oversee people who are not even physically there and never are among them how in the world would that happen? Yeah. It couldn't no. happen. The answer is no. Exactly. All right. All right. It is time for a break and a bullet point. And when we get back, this one may take a little longer, correcting a brother who's in error. Yeah. Uh, how do you correct a brother in error? And we, uh, There's several aspects to that that we're asking. We'll try to get into that. We're back right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. When a fellow Christian offered his assessment that, quote, we're not doing enough, unquote, I was upset and offended. My immediate reaction was negative and defensive. After all, I thought this man is uninformed of many things that are being done by others and unaware of a host of activities that have been done in the past. My mind raced to compile a catalog of good deeds that would dispel his claim. I was sure I could prove that his appraisal was completely off base. As my first blush of anger subsided, I could see clearly again. I began to realize some important points relative to this man's charge. First, it is true that this brother is oblivious to many things that have been done and are currently being done by others. But we never have to fear that God in heaven is ignorant of these important deeds. We know that, quote, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15, verse 3. Furthermore, we know that our, quote, labor is not in vain in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. So, while other men often do not know all that is being done, we can be sure that God does, and that really is all that matters. Secondly, the charge that we're not doing enough is, in fact, true. No one ever can honestly say, I've done all that I can. I've exceeded what is expected. I've accomplished it all. No matter what we've done, there's always more that can and should be done. Remember the words of Jesus, quote, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do, unquote. Luke 17, verse 10. So while the brother who made the accusation needs to be more careful with his approach, we can still benefit from a reevaluation of our work in God's kingdom. We can work harder, longer, and smarter, and we should. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Rick Harris, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. I hope you'll join me and many others in this weekly Internet Bible study group. Be sure to listen every Thursday night. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. Back on the program. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com, collegeview.com. Check out the link for the gospel meeting uh, this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's at uh, collegeview.com is the information you can find out there about that. Kyle, you will be streaming that. Uh, if anyone wants to catch that, it can't make it to the the and, and it will actually we'll actually give an exception this time, Kyle, because of the coronavirus concerns. That oh, yeah. even if you're close by, but you just feel safer watching at home, we're gonna we're gonna grant that this time. Okay, all right. No, we're not gonna put the, we're not blacking it out. Then, right? No, it's not a not well, a original blackout. You don't have to enter your zip code in. Okay, all right. Uh, Kyle, appreciate you getting that out there, making it look good, and getting the word out there. Uh, you'll put that in a playlist, I would assume. Yeah, yep, it will be. Uh, okay. Yeah, after the conclusion there, so it's hopefully it'll be a good uh, a good study for us. All right, we're talking about various random questions, and we're talking about ran- are they random answers too, or are they good answers? Yeah, well, there are the answers are are associated with the question, so they're, the the questions are random, but the answers are directly related to the questions. They're not okay. random. Okay, good. Uh, so the next question is, how do you correct a brother in error? Let's, let's start there because there's some follow-up questions to that. Actually, we have an inspired answer to that question. All right. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. So you are to restore the erring brother in a spirit of meekness, considering that you also are subject to temptation. 
So there's several guidelines right there in that one verse. Okay. Right? Yep. Uh, in James chapter, uh, well, let me get my pages here. My pages are sticking together. In James chapter 5, uh, verse 19, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall uh, hide a multitude of sins. And so, you know, this speaks to our duty, our job, our responsibility, and tells us to go about it. First of all, do it. Do it in a spirit of meekness. Be aware of your own weakness and potentials for temptation. But definitely do it. Uh, and then I would add one more text from Matthew okay. chapter 18. Yep. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning verse 15, Jesus said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. I think putting those all together, you sort of get the pattern of what you, you, you gotta, you gotta go to him. In other words, you don't, you don't sit back and you don't, you know, gripe about him and you don't gossip about him. Jacob, you won't believe what he did. You won't believe that guy. He, you know what I, you know what I heard that he's been doing? That's what you don't do. All of these suggest go directly to him, interact with him, approach him carefully with the, with the intention to restore him. You know, if, if, if I go to an erring brother, I can approach him in two ways. One is in, in such a tone to just drive him off. I, I could make him so mad and so resentful that we'll never see him ever again. That should not be my, I should go to him with love and concern, meekness and caring. Uh, we should pray to have that attitude when we talk to people because sometimes it's not easy. You talk, nope. if you're dealing with a brother who's, who, who is, yep. Uh, pretty pretty deep into a sinful act. Uh, he's been living that way for a while. He's going to be resentful. He may be hateful. He may be off-putting. And so you, you should you should definitely pray before you go that you maintain the right attitude. But yep. you got to go. You got to go to him. Yeah, and uh, you talk about inspired examples and instructions. We see that in Galatians chapter two, when Paul had to even confront Peter. Uh, face-to-face, and he he went to Peter, and he addressed the problem. And that's a good example for us as well, to, as we put this into, into practice. Don't, you know, don't beat around the bush. Take care of business. Exactly right. All right. Now, the follow-up to that question was, how should a Christian respond to the one who's showing him his fault? That's a great question, and I think all of us should should know ahead of time how we intend to respond if... If that, if if in fact it becomes us that needs to be approached, if I'm if I'm doing wrong and someone cares enough to come to me and try to help me with that situation, then at the very least I should be grateful that he cares enough to do it because it's sure a lot easier not to do it. Yeah. It'd be a lot easier to look the other way, but if he cares enough to come to me, I should be grateful. I should be receptive. Now, if he's wrong. In other words, I didn't do what he thinks I did. Well, we can straighten that out right away, right? Yep. So that's still okay. If I did do what he said I did, then I should be really glad that he came to me in an effort to restore my soul. I yep. should be great. At, at a minimum, uh, I should be grateful that he cared enough to come to me. Uh, um. I was thinking about the episode with King David uh, when Nathan the prophet came to him. Uh, you know, remember David had committed sin with Bathsheba, uh, and then he, he he engaged in a big cover up of the sin, and even was effectively uh, guilty of murdering Bathsheba's husband Uriah yep. the Hittite. Yep. Yep. Uh, and and Nathan came to him. Um, and sort of introduced the problem by telling him a bit of a parable. Uh, and when, when he finally, when he finally came to it, 
uh, Nathan said to David, verse 7, 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, Nathan said to David, thou art the man. You're the one who has done this. Um, uh, and and uh, then, he, then he really laid it on David pretty hard. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, uh, well, well, we won't go into all the, but he, he laid out his sin pretty graphically. Uh, and the Lord said, consequences were going to follow. And David, verse 13, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yeah. No effort to make excuse, no self-justification. Oh, Nathan, you just don't know what I'm dealing with here. If you were in my shoes, you'd understand better how this happened. No uh, effort at all to dodge the, the consequence and guilt of his sin. A simple, humble confession. I have sinned. Uh, against the Lord. Right. That, I think David sets the pattern for how, how should a Christian respond to one showing him his fault? David sets the pattern there. Well, you know, but not every situation is the same. In, ver, in Jude, verses 22 and 23, we see that there may be yeah. varying approaches. Uh, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. There's some people that I will use a more compassionate tone with. There may be some folks where I need to get in their face, if you will, and, yeah. and be a little bit more yeah. stern. Yeah. Uh, but there's a distinction that has to be made there. And, and there's some judgment involved yeah. in that approach. And, uh, and again, that's a good, good reason to be praying that God will give us wisdom in dealing with those. Because those are not easy situations. Uh, yeah. Nobody wants to have to do that. Yep. It, uh, but it is a duty that we have, and so we should pray for wisdom doing it well. Along those lines, Brian in California says, if it is a sin unto death, do I go about restoration in a different manner? First John chapter 5, he's referencing verses 16 and 17 there. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I probably would say no, because I think any sin can be a sin unto death. I think the sin unto death there in First John 5 is the sin I won't repent of. Yep. Uh, so anything could become a sin unto death based on how I react when you come and address me about it. You know, if I if if I repent, then it's not a sin unto death. But if I won't repent, then it could be. But but I, I don't think that I, I don't think that affects our approach to the individual. Uh, as you said, judgment will be involved. We should pray for wisdom in doing it. We've got to do it. We want to do it with the right attitude and approach. Galatians six verse one. But I, I don't think I don't think we we'd almost have to prejudge his reaction to us if we were going to use a different approach. You know, I think this guy won't take it well. Therefore, I'm going to do it this way. Or I think this guy will will probably repent, and so I'm going to approach him this way. I don't think we should try to prejudge his reaction. To, to our coming to him. If the sin unto death is just one that when he's presented with the truth, he won't repent of it. But if the sin unto death is one that is a willful sin, like is mentioned in Hebrews 10, verse 26, where if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. That type of sin where it's a willful turning my back against God and rejecting his will for me in my, my life then absolutely I think it, it will take a different approach than it would a brother who's yeah, trying that, and then stumbles. That goes to, the, that goes to what we, in other words, this guy knows better, and I know he knows better. He knows better, and he knows he knows better. That's going to affect my approach to him versus a, a, a fellow who's new, a new Christian who hasn't, hasn't matured much right. at all, yep. very weak in the faith. So we'll use a different approach. Exactly. Well, Dwight and Michelle reference Acts 8 with Simon. Simon said to Peter, pray for me. Uh, Peter was uh, uh, very direct with Simon there in Acts chapter 8. You remember he was in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. He's not mincing words with with Simon there. And Simon was a young convert, it appears, as well. Yeah. Uh, but he, that was a situation that needed some stern rebuking, and Peter gave it to him. There. Yeah. In email, Dwight said, Galatians 6.1 says, in the spirit of meekness or gentleness, I believe this is also a matter of attitude. Paul rebuked Peter before all in Galatians 2. Their soul is lost, so it needs taken care of soon. If you're the one who approached, Dwight says, have a thankful attitude. For someone to show another the error is showing them that they care if they have the right attitude in doing it. Uh, 
Then real quickly, because we're going to have to hurry to get through these, Jacob, but... Uh, Daniel said, Galatians oh, 1, okay. 6, verse 1, be Good. spiritual, going gentleness, consider yourself. James, be happy if he changes. Uh, James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Yeah. And, and, and that's and, the next question. And then he said, what, what, if, uh, what if he corrects the problem? Yeah, be happy, he says there, James 19, or 5, 19 and 20. Well, actually, we also have an, uh, an inspired account of a situation like that. In, in the first Corinthian letter, Paul, in chapter 5, Paul had told the Corinthians to discipline a member there who was living an immoral life. And they yep. apparently followed those instructions. Uh, he says... Uh, uh, Second uh, Corinthians 2, verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly to you all. If any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Okay. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. So Paul there tells, tells how to, you know, receive him back and, and show your love for him. Okay. That's what you do when he corrects the problem. If he doesn't correct the problem, we'll, we'll finish this question real quick. You, you step it up. You follow the procedure we read there in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, that uh, uh, Daniel mentions in his email. You, you move it up. So... You go to him one-on-one. If he repents, great. If he doesn't, you take two or three with you and go talk to him. If he repents, great. If he doesn't, then you take it before the whole church. If he repents, great. You do what Paul wrote there in Second Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, uh, you forgive him. You confirm your love to him if he repents. But if he doesn't, then... You withdraw yourselves from that man. That's along the lines of what Dwight said. He said he references Matthew five fifteen and through seventeen and Second Thessalonians three six through fifteen. It gives us instruction on what to do with an unruly brother. So yeah. there are certain steps that must be taken if someone will not repent. Yeah. Let's grab our last break. We got a couple questions. One about divorce or marriage, and one about dealing with a person who is emotionally manipulating. All right. We're back right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Warning, this is to make you aware of a disorder plaguing American and the metro area, BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. Many people are not getting enough Bible in their daily lives. Are you? Answer the following questions to see if you might be suffering from BDD. Do you answer spiritual questions by saying, I think, instead of, the Bible says? Do you depend on religious authors and pastors to tell you what to believe? When Benny Hinn says, this is your day for a miracle, do you believe him? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you might be suffering from BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. The College View Church of Christ is dedicated to fighting BDD by teaching the Bible. We focus on Christ by following his word. Don't succumb to BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. Fight it by joining us for Bible study on Sunday at 9.30 a.m., and Wednesday at 7 p.m. As long as there is breath in your body, it is not too late to fight Bible deficit disorder. We'll see you this Sunday at the College View Church of Christ. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. According to a recent survey among U.S. adolescents ages 13 to 17, roughly 6 out of 10, that is 63%, identify with Christianity. About a third of U.S. teens say they are religiously unaffiliated, and that includes 6% who describe themselves as atheists, 4% who are agnostics, and 23% who say their religion is, quote, nothing in particular, unquote. That information is via the Pew Forum. The Word of God says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, when the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians three seventeen. Now back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. Going to the top of the hour. Two more questions and we've got to go fast. Okay, real quickly, we had a question about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and it has to do with what's called the race to the courthouse. All right, explain who that to me. Who puts away whom? Uh, 
the 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 biblical pattern for authorized divorce and remarriage is stated plainly in Matthew 19 verse 9. Jesus said, "Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery." So, in a, in a scripture, what we would refer to as a scriptural divorce, one that grants someone the right to remarry. So. We'll speak of it from the man's point of view. A man's wife is unfaithful to him. He takes action to put her away or divorce her for that cause, for that reason. It must be known and the action must be taken for that reason. I'm not arguing that it has to be written on the divorce papers or, or, or any of that, but that it has to be in his mind clearly established that he is divorcing his wife because he is convinced beyond any shadow of doubt that she has been sexually unfaithful to him he takes that action then he may remarry but the put away person in that case she would be a guilty put away person she can't remarry right now flip flip the scenario what if if a man puts her away but she has not committed fornication well he he can't remarry because he didn't divorce his wife for the right reason. She can't remarry either because she's still bound to her husband. In that scenario, neither person can remarry. But it's argued that it's all about who gets to the courthouse. For they say when we teach this pattern, we're we're requiring that someone get to the courthouse first. So let's say that I was cheating on my wife and she didn't know it. But I raced to the courthouse and made a petition of divorce before she even knew what was happening. Therefore, I put her away. She's, she didn't commit fornication, but I put her away. You sort of sealed the fate. Say, no, I, I don't think that that's true because in this case, the, when the wife understands that, that this action is underway, she also file, she can file for divorce against her. She can put her husband. She, you cannot be the passive recipient of an action to put away. Uh, you have to be active. You have to be proactive in putting away a guilty spouse in order to have the right to remarry. It's not a question of racing to the courthouse. It's it's doing. It's following the Bible pattern. If I'm the innocent party in a marriage, my mate has been unfaithful then I have to take action to put my mate away. While the marriage is still intact, before it has been dissolved, while there is still a marriage to be put away, I need to take action to do the putting away. It's not a race to the courthouse, but I do have to be active in that process. All right. Uh Daniel references if both would be able to put the other away for infidelity in the marriage, that is the situation, as I understand it, perhaps some soul-searching is in order. He references Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. All right. Thank you, Daniel, for your email tonight. Um, so, all right. I think we've answered the, the that. One, the one who sent in this question, I might read just a little bit more. Uh, uh, the, the, this person expounds on the question a little bit. But it's being taught in non-denominational congregations that if you're the spouse in a marriage that did not commit adultery, you are the innocent party. But your mate who did commit adultery, the guilty party, files for and receives a divorce. Then the innocent party can marry another. Uh, this actually leads to the topic that we've referred to in the past as mental divorce. Uh, some people say, well, the innocent party then just mentally puts away the other person, a, a mental divorce. Because there's no, there's no marriage left to divorce. Right. And so they just put them away mentally. This person goes on to explain, my thought on why so many believe this to be true is because when marriage, divorce, or marriage is being taught, it's always stressed that only the innocent party in a divorce can marry another. What's not being stressed is that the innocent party must also be the one who divorces or puts away their spouse, referencing Matthew 19, 9, Mark 10, 11, and 12, and Luke 16, 18. I think that's right. Good. Okay. So, again, it's not a question of race to the courthouse, but it is a requirement that the so-called innocent party do a putting away. Yep. Okay. Last question. I think we're going to make it. All right. So the last question is, I've been trying to help a fellow Christian, but she's very emotionally manipulating and spending time with her affects my attitude at home and with my family. What should I do? Uh, 
might give just a little expanding on that question as it came in. This person says, my therapist has suggested that I start practicing saying no to things with her and start setting boundaries. Uh, but she, she says, this hurts me. I have a ton of anxiety about telling her no or setting any boundaries. Uh, uh, but, but she says, my therapist says I, I should ignore that. Uh, I should ignore those bad feelings I have if I tell her no. And if it, if it ends the friendship, then it, then it just does. So what, what's the advice, she says? Well, let's see what Daniel says. He says, well, like the therapist, set boundaries. There comes a time when it is harmful to try and help some people. Matthew 7, verse 6, Acts 13, 45, and 46, just as examples. Well, Matthew 7, verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs nor cast your pearl before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Um, and then Acts 13, 45, and 46, I think we may be shaking some dust off of our feet here, maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I guess my comment would be you can't help someone if you're not what you should be. To well, begin uh, with. And if she's destroying if she's destroying your faith and your relationship with the Lord, how are you going to be able to help her? Exactly right. Uh, and I would take it a step further. I would use 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. If any provides not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. If this, if this ongoing relationship is causing me to to neglect my own, then it's a situation I can't manage. In other words, if, if this person is acting in such a way that it makes it impossible for me to help her and be the person I need to be relative to my own family and the, and my responsibility to my own family, then. I'm going to have to sever that relationship. You know, you can't you can't do it all, and it may very well be that in the case of this individual, you you are not the one who can help, and and you have you have if it's causing you to forsake other responsibilities that you have that are primary responsibilities, then you got to take that into consideration. And I think questioner even admits that this person is manipulating. Yeah. So. Maybe you're enabling them to to manipulate you when you go along with uh, with that type of behavior. Yeah, yeah, possibly so. Okay. All right. So I I hope that helps a little. I, I mean that, that's obviously a quite involved situation, and we just we don't know all the ins and outs of it. But we but I would say, you know, if any relationship is keeping me from being the person I am commanded to be, in this case for this woman who wrote in if it's keeping you from being the wife and mother that you're commanded to be then that other relationship if it's keeping me from being the christian i need to be then i need to distance that relationship i got so here here, this may seem sort of ludicrous but i think it's semi-parallel i got this guy who's a really good friend of mine and we love to fish together but he is constantly tempting me to go fishing on Sunday when I should be worshiping. And I got, I'm sad to say I have given in to him. Uh, and I have, I have forsaken the assemblies to go fishing. And, and he just keeps doing this. And, and in my weakness, I just keep saying yes. What should I do? Well, I'm going to have to sever that. I'm going to have to distance myself from that guy. If I'm not strong enough to deal with what he's putting before me, then I've got to distance myself from him so that I can fulfill my duties to God. Would this not be what Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, about being unequally yoked together? Maybe, if that yeah. relationship is dragging me instead of me dragging the other person, then yeah. maybe the yoke is unequally yeah. uh, set up there. Yeah. yeah. All right. We made it through. Yeah, I got, got a text it. message shortly after your update email went out this morning saying that uh, we might have been a little overly ambitious with uh, that many questions, but we got through. So I thought we couldn't do it, huh? Yeah, we, 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 we were up to the challenge, though, huh? Okay, good. Kyle, thanks for uh, being here tonight, helping us get out. Any final thoughts from you? No, that's a good study. I think it's uh, good questions. I think there's no wrong question when it comes to the Bible, so it's always some good questions. All right, Dad. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Jacob. And again, remember tomorrow night, Friday, uh, Friday night, Saturday night, and three times on Sunday, gospel meeting here at College View. Looking forward to seeing you two tomorrow night, and uh, hopefully see some of our listeners as well. Uh, check it out, collegeview.com, uh, to find out more about 
those special assemblies. We hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word tonight. We hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.